The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 1, and verse 14 is where we pick it up this morning. Last week, we kicked off a new series going verse by verse through Mark's Gospel. As you may have noticed last week, and you will again this week, is Mark's style of writing is abrupt and urgent. He's not about necessarily the details, and things don't always just flow together like they may in Matthew and Luke and even John. And as he presents Jesus to his readers, he's repeatedly answering this overarching question Who is this man? Who is this guy? And he begins in chapter 1 here just reaching way back into Isaiah to show the faithfulness of God to promise that this man would come and really God's faithfulness to even fulfill his promises. Not only was Christ promised that he would come, but an announcer, a forerunner, a precursor to Jesus named John the Baptist would come to announce that the king, the promised one, was coming. And so last week we saw uh, John's ministry in baptizing Jesus. It is now complete when that happened and the plan for Christ was now inaugurated. It was a plan that was set in motion long ago and it is now carrying itself out in the life of Christ here and even he is at work now. And so now here, as promised Here's Christ with a divine authority unlike anyone else. Who is this man? He's the Holy One of God. And what does this give him? Absolute authority over heaven, earth, and all things under the earth. His authority extends over everything. What we're going to see in the coming chapters today and in the coming weeks is Christ's authority that over, extends over rather salvation, our sanctification, over the spiritual realm, over disease and sicknesses, over all things Christ has authority. You name it, it is no match for the Holy One of God. Here's the, here's the big idea. Here's it just said simply. If you write this down and then if you need to, you can fall asleep if you want. The Holy One of God has absolute authority. The Holy One of God has absolute authority. Now, I'm not going to put you to sleep here, so don't worry. Follow along with me. God commands or Christ commands things change. He teaches and hearts transform. Look at Mark chapter 1 with me now as I read verses 14 through 28. They say this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word for God's people. What, an, what a pretty amazing uh, scene of scripture, isn't it? Multiple different snippets here of Christ's ministry, but all with one theme. The Holy One of God has absolute authority. Jesus' position of authority then requires a response from us. Look now at verse 14 as we go a little bit deeper here and see just what this means. See, here's our first point, verses 14 and 15. When Jesus calls, we repent and believe. When Jesus calls, we repent and believe. He begins in verse 14. Look at it with me here with just a little bit of a transition here. Just a phrase. John the Baptist has been arrested. His ministry is complete. That's all he says. We gain a little bit of the context. If you jump to Mark 4, you can read it this afternoon. But John, basically, he called out Herod, who was the ruler there, because he was acting a fool and he took his brother's wife as his own. And so John's like, hey, you can't do that, man. And so Herod, as the supreme ruler, he throws him in prison and he's eventually beheaded. But John's ministry, his faithfulness to the Lord was complete. And now Jesus is coming on the scene. The king has come. And where does he go? Look what it says in verse 14. He goes to Galilee. This is the northern region of Israel. If you're familiar with that, Galilee is basically, in just kind of generic terms, the northern region. The Negev is the southern region. The north is lush and green and hilly and lots of agriculture. The southern part is wilderness, very arid, desert-like climate. And it is here, though, in Galilee where Jesus will do lots of ministry, preaching ministry primarily preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Here's his message. Here's his message. Here, it's, it's really his message in a nutshell. It's his nail. It's, it's kind of like what, what, what I give you every beginning of the message, kind of the, the snippet, right? The main idea, the big picture. In verse 15, Mark gives us the summary of Jesus' entire teaching ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his summary statement. Let's break this down a little bit. The time fulfilled. It really means it's just as been planned. Remember, as uh, from the beginning, God has set all of this in motion. It's as if the kitchen timer was turned on for how many ever decades, millennium, generations, and now Christ has come and ding! The cookies are ready. Only this is much, much better. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does that mean? What does he mean, the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, he means like the king is here. He is standing right before them. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus has come. And now, now you probably hear this. There's some confusion about the kingdom of God. There's, you hear it on the radio and people talk about the advancement of the kingdom. We know that when we're saved, we're saved into God's kingdom out of the domain of darkness, right? Colossians 1 says, into the kingdom of the beloved son. Well, the scripture talks about the kingdom in really two senses. You have the universal kingdom of God. Daniel 4, Daniel 7, uh, Psalm 145. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God is ruling and reigning over the events of this earth. Amen? He is sovereign over all things. God is at work. And then there's another aspect. Daniel 2 refers to this um, in Zechariah 14. Um, in uh, um, Matthew 25, Jesus refers to it. In Revelation chapter 20, there is Christ's millennial kingdom or his mediatorial kingdom where he is ruling and reigning on David's throne, literally physically over God's people as promised by God to the Jewish people. We look forward to that day with great hope and joy, don't we, beloved? The day when, when the trumpets will sound, when Christ will come, the kingdom of God is at hand. But here what he's referring to is Christ is right there. My kingdom is right here because Christ has come. And what is our response as we encounter Christ? When he calls us, what is our response? How does verse 15 end? Two verbs. The time is now. Jesus is king. What will you do? Repent. And believe. Repent and believe. This is the gospel, beloved. This is our response. And what are we to believe in? How does verse 15 end? Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. And so this bears, this is a word that we use quite a bit, don't we? You hear it all the time, gospel. There's some of these churchy words, but what is the gospel? If, you were, if I were to give you the next two minutes, you had to write down the gospel, what would you write down? What would you write down? Where would we begin? What is it if somebody came and said, what is the good news of Jesus Christ, beloved? What would you say? Well, I'd hope it looks something kind of like this. Let me just teach you a little bit here. Write this in your Bible. You can put it in your notes. You can keep it handy. Here are the basic principles, I would say, of the gospel. And it begins with God is holy. God is holy. From Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God it starts with him. It starts with his justice, his goodness, his righteousness, his creation. He is holy in that he is unique and there is none like him. Amen. But very quickly, very quickly in Genesis 3, sin separates us. Sin separates us. Romans 3, 23, you probably know it. Maybe you've memorized it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, all of us born into this world, every single human being has a problem is that we are by nature children of wrath and we love it. We are rebellious against God and we love it and that sin has separated us and so, so much so that we can do nothing about it but God. But God. But God fixed it. But God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 says. Or here, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Beloved, see, Christ stood in our place. He knew the predicament that each one of us was in, but he sent Christ 
That's the ministry. That's what we're reading about. That's what Mark is the study about, is that Christ stood in our place. And as we recognize the reality of those truths, that God is holy, our sin is separated, Christ stood in our place, what is our right response but to repent and believe? And it's really one in the same action. You can't do one without the other. See, if this was our former way of life, walking in our sin, our repentance is really just a turning away from that. It's a turning our back, an active decision to leave our life of sin behind, the sin that separated us from God. And in the same act of turning our backs to sin, we are facing now another direction. And whom are we facing? Christ. Christ. We're believing in Christ and his atonement, what he did on the cross. We are believing in the good news of what Christ did, his person and work on our behalf. And as we repent and believe, that's this next step, this newness of life, this newness of life that Christ has won for us. Listen here, Romans 6, 4. It says, we were buried, therefore, by him, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, when Christ comes in and changes our heart, the good news of the gospel is that our whole trajectory changes, and we now live a new life. We are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. This is, beloved, is a part of the gospel that we have hope here and now as we live in this earth and a future hope of glory, don't we? We walk in newness of life. Beloved, this is the gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? When Christ calls, what do we do? We repent and believe this message has not changed. Christ's call is still the same to be saved. Have you repented and believed on Christ today? This is the most important question. This is the most important question. This is how Christ's ministry begins. This was his message as he is preaching to God's people. And it has not changed today. We are a church built on the foundation of the gospel. Our worship flows from the gospel because we know what Christ has done. These five things are not things that we just grow out of. They're not just like five steps to get in and then live however you want. No, we are living out the gospel day in and day out, reminding ourselves that God, you are holy. In the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, God, you are holy, but sin has corrupted it. It's separated us. But Christ, you've stood in our place. You're at work in the midst of even this. I turn from my sin. I believe on you even today. Even today. Have you? Have you? Let's not let a moment pass by. Let's not, let not a moment pass by. Let's make sure that this is settled in every one of our hearts. And I can't, I can't pray a prayer for you. Maybe you've seen other circumstances where, where there's like the sinner's prayer and to pray those things. And maybe that has been the words that God has used to lead you in prayer, to change your heart. I can't do that for you. It's not just like here, pop this pill or say these magic words and bada bing, bada boom. But if God is at work in your heart, I don't want another moment to pass by without us just pausing even now even now to just pray and to pray that God would do this work in your heart. Can we do that right now? Can we just pray? I'm just going to give you some prayer prompts. I'm just going to say you fill in the blanks as you pray to the Lord even now. That's a problem. And let's pray. God in heaven, we just confess that you are holy. 
And God, as we look at the light of your gospel, the light of your goodness, it has exposed the sin that's in our own heart. All the stuff that I know that I shouldn't have done and all the things that I have done in that. So I just confess it to you now. But I believe Christ. I believe you, Christ. That you are my salvation. And so I need your help now to live differently for your glory. In Christ, we pray and believe. Amen. Amen. Beloved, if you've prayed that prayer this morning, I would... uh, compel you. Let's talk about it afterwards. Let's talk about it afterwards. So God is doing a good work. He who's began a good work will bring it about to completion, and you have a whole new life ahead of you. When Jesus calls, what do we do? We repent and believe. We repent and believe. This is the greatest news. This is what Christ came to proclaim. His authority extends even over our salvation, but it does not end there, does it? Because he has absolute authority, let's continue on in verse 16. When Jesus summons, we go. When Jesus summons, we go. Look at how verse 16 says, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee here, it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world, if you didn't know that. It's it's about 64 miles square. The Jordan River flows in and out of it. It's prominent throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. It's called the Sea of Kinneret. In Luke 5, he calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. John 6, it's also called the Sea of Tiberias, but it is most commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. And here Jesus continues his ministry and he calls, he really summons two sets of brothers, both in the fishing business. Did you catch that? Both of them in the fishing business. One is casting their nets and the other is mending their nets. I guess one set of brothers like actually is doing well and the others, they're just like casting it on rocks or something. So they have to fix up all their nets. But he summons two sets of brothers He summons them with the authority of only Christ. Have you ever received a jury summons? Anybody ever got one of those? We got one in the mail just this last week, but it wasn't for us. It was for the previous owners of our house. I guess, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, it was for jury duty, not necessarily for, you know, they were being called to court, but you just send it back in. They don't live here anymore. I don't know where they live. Why, what are those jury summons? They come based on the authority of the court system, don't they? They come based on the authority of the court. You must appear. Whatever job you have, whatever other plans you made for that day, you must show up. Now, if you read the fine print, there's some other things like you can get out. There's some caveats in there, right? But otherwise, there are no excuses. You must be there. And in the same way, Jesus summons these fishermen by the authority that he has as the Holy One of God, saying simply this, follow me. And they come up with all kinds of excuses. They go on their phone and they check their schedule like, well, Jesus, can we set up an appointment for 10 days from now? Now, what does it say? There's a word that's repeated multiple times in, in this section of scripture. Begins with an I, ends in an immediately. What word? What do they do? Immediately. 
They leave their nets and follow him. Immediately, they leave their father Zebedee to the work in the boat with the hired servants, rather, and they follow him. Peter and Andrew, they leave their livelihood. James and John leave their family. No hesitation. They just go, why? Because they want to become fishers of men. They're tired of catching just little, uh, you know, pan fish and bass and all that stuff, and they want those gargantuan fish. No. They become fishers of men. God is calling them to a different manner of life. Some of you moved to New Braunfels because you had a job opportunity, moved here for family reasons maybe, moved here for retirement, and whether you realized it or not, God had gospel intentions for you, didn't he? He placed you in a neighborhood. He placed you in a church. He placed you in a new job and a new position. Uh, he said, follow me, and you are there for bigger reasons than maybe you realized. But you're there for gospel purposes. See, all of us who follow Christ, we're a sent people. We are a sent people. The summons to follow is lifelong and ongoing. See, when we come to Christ, we repent and believe. It doesn't just stop there. It's not a one and done thing. It is a lifelong, ongoing summons to follow Christ. Are you a Christ follower? Hands up if you are. Do you follow Christ? Have you repented and believed? Good. Then you are to follow him the rest of your life. You are a sent people. If you've embraced the call to follow Christ, then you've embraced the call to fish for Christ. See, here's something said simply, to follow Christ is to fish for Christ. See, our salvation, repenting and believing is not just about a personal makeover. It is rather about a, a, a summons to a global mission. It is, a, it is now your life is owned by someone else. And beloved, let me just point this out here. This is not a summons. The summons to follow me is not just a summons for pastors, for people in full-time ministry, though no doubt God may be calling some of you to do that. I pray, I pray uh, almost daily that God would raise up men and women from among our church that would be a part of church planting movements across the globe. I'm praying that he would raise up pastors and elders among us that would serve our body here and people that we could also send out to other places to plant churches, that they would heed the call to follow me and go. Is God calling you to that? Maybe to preach, maybe just to be a part, maybe to be support, maybe to be evangelistic. Is he summoning you? But beloved, this is not just a summons for those in full-time vocational ministry. This is a summons. The summons to follow Christ is for all of us, fishermen and everybody else. Where is he sending you? What's keeping you from fishing? Is it fear? Don't miss the point. We don't fish based on our own authority, do we? call to share the gospel with one another is not based on our own authority or our own ability to, to coerce people to come to Christ. No, it's in Christ's authority. It's in Christ's authority. What's holding you back? Maybe it's because, because you don't know how. I don't, I don't know how to fish. I don't know what the gospel message is. Now you do. It's just on the screen a little bit ago. Now you know. You can take the gospel. You can share it with anybody who will listen. 
And I think it's appropriate that Christ uses this example, not just that they're fishermen, but just in his sovereign goodness, he calls it fishing and not catching because some of us maybe get discouraged. We've shared the gospel many times and we've just never seen any impact. We've never caught anything. That's like the easiest way to get discouraged from fishing, isn't it? Some of you like, like to fish in here? Yeah, some of us do. And you want to take people, you want to get people into it, like your kid, like, you want, I want to raise up Malachi, I want him to love fishing, but when I'm fishing, I want, him to, I want to take him to a place where, like, the fish actually bite, right? The last time we went, uh, we went just down to Fisher Park, he wanted to fish one morning, we just only had a little thing, and so, it's called Fisher Park, but there's no fish in the park. But he, he, had, he had a good time. I mean, whenever you get to throw sharp objects around, you know, on a pole and all that, it's pretty fun for a six-year-old. But we want to catch things. But I, I just remind us that even as we become fishers of men, we don't always catch it, but don't let that discourage us because the power is not in the words that you say per se. That you say per se. But the power is in the gospel of God. When we share the gospel, that's where the power lies. Not in our eloquent speech, not in our uh, you know, crafty, eloquent manner of speaking. But it's in Christ. When Jesus summons, we go. We follow him. We fish for him. Who has God put in your life? What ponds has he put you around to fish in? Jesus is summoning us to follow. You ready to go fish? You ready to go fish? See, Jesus has authority over our salvation. He has authority over our sending because he has absolute authority. When Jesus teaches, we obey. When Jesus teaches, we obey. Look at this last little snippet here. Jesus' authority extends over even into the spiritual realm. Jesus' ministry continues. Look at verse 21. He goes into Capernaum. It's a city there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can go visit it today. The synagogue that is referred to here, you can go visit the ruins today. It's very cool. It's awesome. There's all kinds of you know, touristy things around it now. But you can actually go there and visit where Jesus himself was teaching. But look here, isn't, isn't this interesting? Jesus goes, it's on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, which was the Jewish teaching place, and he begins teaching. I, I, I read that, and as a pastor, I'm like, Wait, this guy just shows up, and they like give him the pulpit? I'd never do that. You know, there's like, isn't there like an appropriate system of vetting and all that? And like, what's this guy's theology? Is he skilled? Is he, can he handle the word? Whatever. But it was just a common practice in those days. A scribe, a rabbi would come and they would say, all right, here you go. The, the, the stage is yours. And they would begin to teach. And most often they were just kind of pontificating. They were just showing off how brilliant they were. They would be reciting other rabbis and other works of the day. But not Jesus not Jesus. Look at what it says here in verse 22. Jesus stands up and they are astonished at his teaching. See, it was common for rabbis to teach. It was uncommon to be taught the way Jesus taught. They were astonished. They were blown away. His teaching is unlike anything that they had ever heard. Everyone in the, in the building there is astonished. But what else does it do in verse 23? Not only are they amazed by his authority, but it also exposes an unclean spirit in their midst. It's like a big bright light. Christ's teaching with authority was like a big bright light in a dark room and it made the cockroaches uh, scatter. 
It exposed this unclean spirit. And let me just say this. Unclean spirits, demons, they love to hide out in false religions. They love to hold people captive to these doctrines of men and blind them to the true teaching of Christ. And so, of course, Christ comes up. He's teaching in this, in this manner. And, and here's a man that they, they likely all knew. Here is just somebody in their midst that they knew he was a friend and he cries out. What have you to do with us? And he uses here, look at these two terms that he uses of Christ. You see this? Verse 24, he first uses a derogatory name for Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he calls him the Holy One of God. He refers to as the deity. See, this term Jesus of Nazareth, you'll see it throughout the scriptures. The, the Roman soldiers, they call Jesus this in John 18, but it's really kind of a sneer. It's kind of, it's a, Nazareth wasn't like a great place. It was kind of like the, maybe the lower income place to be from. It's like they were kind of snooty about it. Oh, you're Jesus of Nazareth, huh? And so they're referring to this. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They're, they're, this demon is chiding him, but it is not long before he exposes really who he is. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see the spectrum here? Do you see the spectrum of whom Christ is being referred to? The demons know and reveal who Christ is. What's really interesting in Mark is the demons are oftentimes the ones that are revealing just who Christ is. People don't get it. They're all asking, they're like astonished, they're scratching their heads. Who is this guy? The demons know. They know, they're under no illusion just who this man is. They know who has the authority and now he has come and they are being exposed as in, the, in the midst of this false religion that Judaism had become in those days. And so what does Jesus do? He rebukes him, he silences him, and he kicks him out. And the people are amazed. They're like, what just happened? And I don't know about you, but I'm assuming that anytime we come to a passage like this, there's, some, there's like some questions that raise up. What is it that demons can do, All right. What can demons do? What's their power? You ever have questions like that? You know, like, well, what is it? What, 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 how far does it extend? All that. You ever have questions like that? Well, I, don't, I, want, I want to teach you a little bit. I'm a pastor and I want to teach you a little bit what the scripture teaches on this. We're not going to go exhaustively so you can pull out your phone and like psh, take a picture of this next slide that's going to come up here uh, because there's a lot of information. But here's this. You have to make an agreement with me as, we, as it comes on the screen. We cannot miss who this passage is about. Whose power is this passage about? It's about Jesus. It is not about the demons and their power. I want to teach you on it. I want you to know this stuff, but do not miss who this passage is about. It's about Christ. It's about Christ and about his authority. And, and, and our enemy would love nothing more than to distract us from just that this morning. But here you go. Here's some teaching. Throw it up on the screen there. What can demons do? This is from Biblical Doctrine, page 713. Here's just a, a, a survey of the scriptures of what they can do. They can indwell humans and animals. Mark 5, you see this. It's indwelling the man. And then they go into pigs. They have that ability they have the ability to physically afflict people, see people with, with uh, uh, diseases and, and, and all kinds of, of uh, physical ailments. They can terrorize humans. They can terrorize them. We see uh, King Saul back in 1 Samuel. He's terrorized by an unclean spirit. The sons of Sceva in Acts 19, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh, he attributes it to a messenger of the evil one. 
It can initiate false worship. First Corinthians 10, they talk about uh, pagan sacrifices, of things sacrificed to false idols. They provoke, promote false doctrines, all kinds of false teachings, where some in latter times will depart from the faith. They will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. They can promote all kinds of false doctrines, as we see even in this passage here. They can perform false signs and wonders. This is a mark of the end times. It's a mark of, of, the, uh, of the lawless one who will come that can perform f- false signs and wonders. But what's also interesting as you look through the scriptures, those three main times where signs and wonders, where the miraculous gifts were uh, uh, on display as they were authenticating the messengers, as they were inaugurating uh, a new era in salvation history, first with Moses as the people of Israel are going into the promised land, the times of Elijah and Elisha as, as God's people are going into captivity, and then that Christ and the apostles, those kind of 60-year periods where God is specially uh, gifting his people with these miraculous gifts. In all of those scenes, there are also uh, false signs and wonders. People that are, uh, you see it in, in Egypt, right? They are getting all their guys and they're able to replicate to some degree these signs and wonders. And our enemy will go to no great lengths to do that, to distract us to try to somehow diminish in our eyes the absolute authority of Christ. Go to no, no lengths. He can deceive prophets. Israel's in captivity, 1 Kings rather 22. And the Lord says the prophets, some prophets have been given lying spirits. That's why anyone who would claim to have a prophetic voice needs to be tethered to the scriptures. Anyone who's not, watch out. Watch out. Because this is God's authoritative voice. They can encourage idolatry, so much so where they can encourage people to sacrifice children, and they can engineer death. Mind you, God is the final arbiter of life and death. But in some way, some way we're not necessarily sure how it all works out, God can influence it, or the demons can influence the time of our death. Death came in the world as a result of sin. Without sin, death would not be necessary, but they came. And so here's what demons can do. But who is this passage about? Let's come back to Mark chapter one. Who's it about? Sunday school answer. Hit me with it. Jesus, that's right. It's about Jesus. And it's about his authority. It's about his authority. Do not miss this. He, Jesus, has the absolute authority to thwart any of these powers. They are no match for him. This is about Jesus. And the people present there, and I hope we are today, that they are astonished by his teaching and they are amazed by his authority. That's who this, this, this chapter is about. See, as, as Mark is writing to his readers in the message for us today, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, he wants us to know that Christ is the boss, that he is the powerful one. He is the holy one of God. And as we come to grips with that, this leads us to greater obedience When Jesus teaches, he's teaching like a a man who was unparalleled in his authority. Teaching as a man unmatched in his ability to teach and to cast out demons. And what does this do? Even the demons obey him. When Christ puts his power on display, when Christ teaches, we obey. No fits, no fights. He's teaching us. And praise God that he has given us just that. That we have God's word recorded for us. 
We have God's spirit residing in us. And we have God's people running alongside of us so that we might have help in knowing God's truth. We might have help in understanding right before us what exactly did Christ teach? Who is this man? But we need to obey it. We need to apply it. We need to rub it into our lives so that it has an effect into everything. See, when Christ teaches, we obey, we apply it. When he teaches, we apply it. It's like sunscreen, isn't it? What good does sunscreen do if it's just sitting in the bottle? What good does sunscreen do if we just like put a little drop on our hand? It's not going to protect us, but we need to work it into our skin. We need to apply it, and then we can experience all of its benefits. God's word applied is no different. God's word worked into our life, then protects us from the heat of trials. It enables us to go have fun without worry in the sun, to experience the blessing and the vitamins that the sun would provide for us, but it must be obeyed or applied. Praise God for his word. Praise God for his spirit. Praise God for his church, God's people around us, helping us to live this out. What's keeping you? What keeps you from obedience? What is it? What excuses do we have? He's given us everything that we need. Beloved, the Holy One of God has absolute authority, does he not? Our salvation, no match for Christ. Our sending, our will, our plans, no match for Christ. The devil's schemes, no match for Christ. You name it, no match for Christ, amen? He has absolute authority over everything. No contest, none like Christ. He is not just a mere man from Nazareth, but he is heaven's conqueror in every way. And not only, as our chapter ends here, our section ends rather, not only does his fame spread all throughout that region, but it is now spreading to the very ends of the earth. Isn't that a glorious thing? His fame, heaven's conqueror, his fame is spreading far and wide as God's people who are repenting and believing and fishing, as we are extending the good news of Jesus Christ, it is going forth. The great commission is being fulfilled. What a glorious thing, isn't it? What a glorious thing. Who is this man? He's the Holy One of God. Let's pray now. God in heaven, um, here we are.